Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. He's going to be glad he's only former CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben Baldanza. When we get to today's fine or wine, he's former CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben Baldanza, who now teaches about how airlines work. I've actually been fine about that since the day I left. <laughs> and he's sure to be one of the people to get the vaccine when they're available. He's NPR's here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. Oh yeah, get that thing in my arm as soon as possible. I know I'm not first on the list. Other people need it first, but when it's my turn, I want it. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, the MAX is almost back in service. We'll get a firsthand account of last week's media flight. Plus, how many hubs does Delta need in the Midwest? It's not a rhetorical question. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. The 737 MAX is back in the air, possibly in revenue passenger service by like late this week. American Airlines is not the airline that would put it in service that soon, but soon. And it operated a 737 MAX media flight last week from Dallas-Fort Worth to Tulsa. I wasn't on it. Ben wasn't on it either. But our friend Chris Sloan from the Archive was. He joins us now. Chris, before we get to the flight, I want to ask you quickly about something that will have broader impact than the media flight, although I know that was fascinating. What I want to ask you about is how soon passengers are going to be flying again on the MAX and where. Well, it looks like, uh, by the way, thank you for having me on your mediocre show. I'm really, uh, I really appreciate it. <laughs> We're not that um, good. I know. We, we yeah. would have to improve to be mediocre. <laughs> uh, well, fantastic. I mean, getting, uh, you know, obviously serious uh, kind of transition to where it's serious business. You know, goal is now going to be the first airline uh, to fly the MAX in scheduled service. And this week now they filed scheduled flights beginning now December 18th. Uh, we'd heard December 10th, but. At this point, it appears the 18th. So they're going to start with five flights with two aircraft on the first day, and then there'll be five to six flights per day for the rest of December. But the first carrier here in the United States will be American, uh, who's going to launch on um, December 29th, uh, one rotation a day between Miami, the Miami base, and the Miami hub for the MAX uh, between Miami and LaGuardia. And then over the next coming month, they're going to expand that route network out to JFK, uh, Reagan, uh, Tampa, and then throughout the Caribbean. So they're going to go by the end of January, uh, 19 daily max flights. And then um, and then also United looks like they're going to start in February. And uh, then Alaska, uh, who is a new customer, uh, around March 1st. And American, correct me if I'm wrong, but they've gotten a lot more aggressive about putting maxes back in service than they're, they were originally planning. You were, you were telling me off air earlier that according to Sirium schedule data, they've loaded a lot more max flights than they had. Am I correct about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when we were on that first flight Wednesday, they'd only loaded 170 flights. And now they're up to for January. Um, and now they're up to 588. And, um, and they say they're gonna have about five to six aircraft out of the fleet of the originally delivered fleet of 24 uh, four will be activated um, 
you know, right around December 29th. So yeah, they have gotten a lot more aggressive for sure. Well, it's great that you got to go on that flight, Chris, and that everybody's bringing it back, but not everybody is excited to see the Max back in the air. I'm talking, of course, about the families of the 346 people who died on the Lion Air and Ethiopian Max flights that crashed. Yes. So, uh, you know, on the same day as the media flight, uh, you're right, Ben, um, a uh, significant number of the families that were, you know, that were impacted by the tragic deaths of from the uh, from the crash issued a statement that this, in fact, was, you know, a media, you know, a stunt and a gimmick and that it was really, um, you know, improper and that, you know, the airplane had not been tested correctly. It's not ready and there are safer alternatives out there. So for sure, no, absolutely um, not everybody is happy about the Max returning to the skies. Chris, I saw some comments online about how the middle seats on the media flight seemed to be empty. In other words, perhaps blocked middle seats on an airline that doesn't block middle seats for regular passengers. Granted, most airlines don't block them right now, but uh, sort of overlaying the max problems with the COVID situation. Any thoughts about that? And is that in fact what happened? Were they blocking middle seats? I mean, not to my knowledge. I don't really know one way or the other. What I do know was that there were 140 passengers on there. Um, The vast majority of those were press. I mean, there were some uh, you know, union representation, labor representation, uh, leadership representation. But um, from what I understood is, you know, a number of media outlets, bloggers and other journalists, you know, couldn't make it. I mean, whether that was for uh, for COVID reasons and, uh, you know, some of their companies and parent companies not allowing them to go. Like I know, for instance, the Associated Press sent, you know, photographer, but they didn't send a reporter. So, uh, you know, I don't personally know, but the offer was extended to a number, a lot more people than did in fact make it. Well, it's great that it, uh, most of the middle seats were empty. If, um, but do you think, Chris, that bringing back this plane now when so many planes are grounded would do anything to sort of make even more capacity come back? It seems to me most airlines that have this are just going to replace they're more efficient max for the ones that are flying right now rather than add more flying given the demand. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it was such a significant problem, uh, particularly with Southwest when, you know, the grounding first happened back in March of 2019 that they did not have the aircraft to fly the schedules that they had scheduled. And now, obviously, you know, the system has been decimated, you know, maybe in this country, what, at 45, 50% level. So, Yes, it's a more efficient aircraft, and and uh, it's a $60 million asset that's been sitting on the ground having to be maintained and stored and serviced and all that labor uh, placed against it. But it's, uh, you know, on the ground and uh, not making money. So, yeah, I mean, it's coming back at a, a very, very different time um, than an exit. And, and, in fact, oil prices are also so low. So, you know, you do wonder, um, you know, where it fits in the fleet. But clearly, um, the airlines that do have it um, – are going to move very aggressively now looking at these schedules, um, particularly now in January and February at uh, putting it back in the air as, as the, uh, as it's recertified. You know, we had an astute listener a few uh, episodes ago say that, uh, you know, a year ago we had planes without pilots. Now we have pilots without planes. That's for sure. You know, I thought it was interesting that American, the differences in the approaches, American is going to move really fast and, basically have the entire fleet of 24 of the original delivered aircraft, 
you know, ready to fly by the end of February. And, um, and they're doing that work in house and then all 2,700 pilots by the end of March. And so they're going to take a, a pretty quickly phased in action to take the max of the skies. But then you look at Southwest who's holding back until what, I mean, they haven't pl- placed a date on it, but c- certainly later, seems like later than March and all their pilots uh, system wide will have to be retrained and um, in the simulator before they're willing to begin any max service. So I found that really interesting. Um, their COO told me, he said, you know, look, we're not trying to move faster than anybody else. Um, David Seymour said, but he said, look, I mean, we can talk about confidence and trust all we want, but until the airplane's up in the air and uh, it's not going, that's when it's going to start convincing people that the plane is safe. And that's when trust will be made. Any indications about that? Uh, and I, I know in the end, actions speak louder than words, and you probably shouldn't listen to what people say. People will tell you, I'm never going to get on a max, and then they will someday. But in terms of early on, do airlines feel like that's going to be an issue? People trying to avoid flying the max if they can? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, you know, nobody seems to be running away from the branding of it. Uh, Southwest, there was a story in from Reuters that was reported. Uh, last week, that research had indicated to them that 25% of their cons- customers were still uncomfortable with flying the MAX, which really drives the flexibility. Um, but they're still going to call it the MAX. I mean, but all the carriers are saying, you know, look, we're going to allow uh, maximum flexibility in rebooking or avoiding the plane. But then you look on the flip side, you know, Ryanair has their big order that they placed last week, which is a huge shot in the arm, kind of like a vaccine would be a nice shot in the arm, except that, uh, you know, they're they're really branding it as the, uh, you know, what is that, the 8200, um, the Dash 8200, and really kind of downplaying the whole notion of the Max. So it still does seem like there are confidence issues uh, here where, you know, again, the last precedent of this was the DC-10, you know, 40 years ago, but that was 66 days, 60 days or something like that. And this is, you know, 600 days. And uh, it's a story that continues to play out over and over again. It never quite disappears. So I think it's a very... You know, I will say this, when I posted on anecdotally on social media that I was going on the max, I mean, a lot of my friends and family who are not in the industry were like, are you crazy? Um, why are you getting on that thing? Are you, you know, it's like, don't, are you like a daredevil? And I'm just like, I was kind of taken aback and surprised that the general public still just in my own straw poll um, seems concerned. Yeah. And, and the history is that people eventually move on from whatever the crisis is and eventually go back to doing whatever it is that they say that they're not going to do. But it does stand to reason that with this being by far the longest grounding we've ever seen, that perhaps that could take longer. As you said, the DC-10, much shorter. The the Dreamliner was grounded not because of crashes, but because of of concerns for, what was it, four or five months back in, I think, 2013. I'm sure there were people who for some small period of time after it was back in the air might have avoided the Dreamliner. This is a much longer term uh, grounding with based on more tragic circumstances. So wouldn't be surprised to see it go on longer, although I, you know, in, in the end, I think it is just, uh, like you said, a question of, of time of getting it back in the air. And Chris, just in terms of the flight itself, anything that stood out to you that was surprising maybe relative to your expectations going into it? I mean, what was surprising was how unextraordinary and uneventful uh, the flights were. I mean, uh, obviously, we heard from the captain, and you don't normally hear a captain say things on the you know the PA system like, "Look, you know, when there's a 
an accident, uh, aviation safety, which is, you know, based on a chain of events and a chain of trust when a piece of that breaks and that a link of that breaks that there's, um, you know, we have to mend that. You don't really hear those kind of comments um, on a, uh, on a PA system. But other than that, I mean, it was the fact, other than the fact that the plane was swarming with cameras and reporters, um, it felt very, very normal. Even to the point when we reached 10,000 feet, uh, the in-flight message, uh, automated in-flight message said, thank you for flying with American today. You know, if you would like to join our MasterCard aviator program, we are running a special. <laughs> so, um, I think they inadvertently were uh, marketing the loyalty uh, card. Um, but other than that, you know, we had bistro bags with water and biscoffs, and it felt like a very normal flight, very boring. And I suspect um, that's exactly uh, what they want, boring and uh, normal. Chris, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to join us. That's Chris Sloan of thearchive.net. That's A-I-R-C-H-I-V-E, all kinds of great stuff on there, thearchive.net. Chris, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Time next for our first listener question. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. Andrew of Austin writes, one thing that's been on my mind lately is why Delta has hubs in both Minneapolis and Detroit, two cities that probably serve much more connecting traffic than destination traffic in both former Northwest hubs. I understand MSP makes sense for having a hub in the middle of the country to connect all your domestic flying, and Detroit makes sense for uh, being that not quite East, East Coast, but not quite Midwest either spot where you can connect most of the country efficiently to long-haul destinations in Europe and Asia while keeping expensive connecting traffic out of JFK, similar to the role Philadelphia plays in the American network, wouldn't it make more sense to do what United and American do in Chicago and have a Midwest hub for international and domestic traffic? Hypothetically, if Delta were to close one of these hubs, which city do you think they would choose and why? A couple of things for me first. Then we want to hear what Ben thinks. I mean, first of all, Chicago's taken, right? We've talked about that before. It's, it's, this is a real estate business and, and, uh, Delta would probably prefer to be at Chicago than, or, or, or perhaps anyway. You know, I don't, I don't know that the, the Chicago is more profitable for either of those airlines than uh, Minneapolis and Detroit are for Delta, just because it's it's competitive, whereas those are less competitive. But anyway, uh, Delta has what they have, as you said, inherited from Northwest. First of all, geographically, and this is one of these things I always have to remind myself of too. Minneapolis and Detroit are just not that close. Uh, they're what 525 miles apart. It's it's almost like saying. Why does Delta keep both Detroit and Atlanta, which are 594 miles apart? Uh, so, so remind ourselves of that first, and then beyond that, uh, they're they're both rather profitable hubs. Uh, M- Minneapolis doesn't support the long haul flying that Detroit does, but it was always an extraordinarily profitable hub for Northwest. The old saying at Northwest was, "The Upper Midwest." It's cold, it's dark, and it's all ours. That was the internal thing that people said there. The way they dominated that part of the country uh, and dominant in Detroit, too, in a way no other airline dominates a place like Chicago. And, and Andrew, obviously an astute listener, he mentioned Philly and JFK. Of course, he knows those are much closer together than these, but the, the different roles that they play, Philadelphia, more of a connecting hub, JFK, more uh, of, a, of a local traffic, O&D, 
place with not as much feed, but lots of local demand in normal times anyway in New York. But Ben, uh, what do you think about that? And uh, what else are we missing here in terms of uh, of Delta? And is there an answer to which one would it close? Because I don't know the answer to that, if there is one. Well, you know, my son and I play a fun game sometime where we um, pretend there's no airlines in the United States and we're going to draft hubs like you might in a sports way. Like, you know, and so number one pick Atlanta. Right. And so the, yeah. the idea being that uh, if you draft the city, you would get 80 percent of the resource in that hub. So if you draft Chicago, you're not getting saying I'm going to move in on American and United Chicago. You're saying I'm going to have 80 percent of Chicago. Right. That's the idea of the draft. And in that draft, Detroit and Minneapolis always get drafted, you know, with in relatively high picks because they are both important hub cities and important cities. You know, Minneapolis on its own has 18 Fortune 500 companies headquartered there. That generates a lot of business, at least in pre-COVID times. We'll have to see what happens with business traffic going forward, but that's a, that's beyond the scope of this question. And um, also it gets really cold in Minneapolis and the colder it gets in places, the more people want to get warm in the winter to go to Phoenix or Florida or someplace like that. And so there's actually quite a bit of local demand in Minneapolis. Yes, it connects, but there's a good bit of local demand as well. And what you don't have is an alternative airport like Midway with Southwest with a hundred, over 100 flights there either. So the yields are pretty high. The fares are pretty high there. Now you go to Detroit, and it's a real important city. Northwest, when it was its own airline before it merged with Northwest, always considered Detroit its most important Asian hub, even when it operated a hub in Tokyo. Because if you take all the East Coast and connect it through Detroit, all short flights to Detroit, by the way, which means lower cost, and fly a lot of long haul into Asia from Detroit, you get a shorter flight, short, better connectivity, less circuity, for example. And so unless you can get a nonstop flight, Detroit was really the best way to get to many Asian places from many places on the East Coast. You add to that the fact that it, too, is a pretty big city, maybe not thriving as much as Minneapolis is right now with some of the economic troubles it's had, but it's still big. And if Delta were to leave either one of those places, there's a certainty, I think, that another airline would swoop in and take a, a lot of that resource in place. Let me tell you a, let me tell you a, a kind of a funny story from my background, Seth. When U.S. Airways was in its first bankruptcy, one of the things the airline did was it it closed its hub in Pittsburgh and it uh, returned, it basically rejected its gate leases while it was in bankruptcy. And the head of the airport came down to Washington where U.S. Airways was headquartered and says, what can we do to keep, have you keep the hub open here at Pittsburgh? And being the relative, you know, smart you know what that I am sometimes. I said, I said, well, you've got to get everyone who lives in Detroit to move to Pittsburgh. That's what you have to do. <laughs> and he didn't think that was very funny, but it was actually quite accurate yeah. that Pittsburgh relied so much more on connectivity than Detroit. So I don't think Delta would close either of them. In fact, Seth, if they were going to close any hub, I think they'd probably close Salt Lake. And I'm not saying they should close Salt Lake, but when you think about Minneapolis and their buildup in Seattle, that's probably more redundant than what they do in Minneapolis and Detroit. Yeah, and and I, I think the larger point here, and I hadn't really thought about it until we had this discussion, but 
you go back a year or two and people used to think about, okay, what hub would an, an airline close if it were to close a hub? And, you know, would American close Philly or Phoenix? Would it? And, and the point is that I think because of consolidation, airlines have gotten to the point where they don't have those marginal hubs because now they are shrinking in a way where in the past uh, it would have taken far less shrinkage than this before they would have said, okay, time to close you know, Cincinnati, Memphis, Cleveland, you, you, you name it, Pittsburgh. And, and yet they're keeping all of these hubs. And that just, I think, speaks to uh, the fact that in good times anyway, and as you said, we'll, we'll see what happens when, when the recovery uh, gets truly underway and which of these do disproportionately perhaps better than others. But in good times, at least all of these hubs were profitable for these airlines. Otherwise, they sure wouldn't have them now. Uh, you know, they, they would be very quick to close something that uh, that wasn't working before. Well, everything you ever wanted to know about alliances, okay, maybe not everything, but everything we can tell you in like four minutes, when Airlines Confidential returns. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services and technologies, their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital.com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, Tune in and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Back to the mailbag now. Dan of San Diego writes in with a question about alliances and I'm just going to truncate this. Dan says, love the show as you can hopefully tell from my continual questions. He says as an MBA and corporate accountant, that's what he is uh, just wondering some things about the way airlines interact with each other. He says, I want to ask you about interlining code sharing alliances and joint ventures. And th that's a useful way. I, I agree to sort of think about the different ways airlines work with each other. And, just, just as and Dan asked a lot of questions and they're all great. And literally we could spend three shows covering all of this and it would be interesting. Instead, we have like a few minutes, so we'll do what we can with it. Just, just to show sort of the, the complexity of this and, and, and uh, you know, and, and I think different people have their own things that they misconstrue alliances. Dan says, what are additional features above and beyond code sharing? Is it just a broader network-wide perspective as opposed to a single route? Are other non-operational decisions and activities affected? So see, what's interesting here is that Dan, I think, is assuming, although maybe I shouldn't assume what Dan is assuming, that alliances are a deeper form of cooperation than code sharing. And I mean, correct me if you think I'm wrong, Ben, but you know, really they're not. Uh, code sharing... You could have two airlines working actually very closely together. I mean, they're selling seats on each other's flights. Uh, if all they do is code share, they would be prohibited from doing certain other things in terms of working together. But you could have two alliance partners that are halfway around the world from each other. And yeah, they might honor each other's frequent flyer benefits and that sort of thing, but they don't sell seats on each other's flights. 
they don't work very closely together. So I don't think this is necessarily a hierarchy uh, where Alliance is like at the top of the thing. Joint venture, I would think you would agree, Ben, uh, is, is the closest form of cooperation. And you could have a joint venture between two airlines that are not in, in an alliance together, or of course, there are many joint ventures that are. But is is this is this the right way to think about this? A hierarchy of uh, again, just reading them again, interline code sharing, alliance, and joint venture, or is there a better way to think about that? I think a better way to think about it, Seth, is not to think about it as a hierarchy, but think about it as a sort of strategy and tactics. An alliance just means a partnership, and a partnership can be a very nominal thing, like an interline relationship, which just means that if a customer is flying on two different airlines, their bag will get exchanged, then they don't have to have two separate tickets or things like that. Makes it easy for the passenger. Many times interline relationships have no other coordination between the two airlines. And sometimes they're only even one way. It might work in you know, Air American to United, but not United to American. And I just made those up. I'm not saying that's true in that case. But so, um, so we could so we could probably agree that interline is the most basic form of cooperation. Yeah, but, that, but that, yeah, that's right. But an alliance is really a a set of agreements between airlines that agree to partner, and those agreements could include a code sharing agreement, or they may not. And they could include a joint venture or they could not. They may include frequent flyer reciprocity where you can earn miles on one airline and burn them on the other airline. They may include ground handling services where I'll handle your airplanes in my hub and you handle my airplanes in your hub. It could include joint purchasing things. Let's buy all our seats together so we get a better price from the seat manufacturer, right? Or it can include... None of those things or any of the things. The point is an alliance is just a partnership between two airlines or among multiple airlines, in the case of the big alliances, where the airlines just agree to do things together that make sense for everyone. Code sharing is a very specific tactic where you can sell a flight, a single flight, as if it were the flight of different airlines. So for example, Americans flight one, two, three from Dallas to London might also be sold as British Airways flights four, five, six from Dallas to London, even though it's one flight with one plane flown by either British Airways or American Airlines, but it'll be sold by American Airlines as their flight and British Airways is their flight. And that's what code sharing is, but that's just a tactic within the Alliance and it can help to make it easier for customers to find more opportunities Joint ventures usually mean that the airlines are actually sharing in the costs and revenues and the ultimately the profitability of the flights that's flown. To have that level of cooperation usually requires that the partners are what's called immunized. What uh, I don't mean that in a vaccine sense, going back to that. <laughs> but normally, if you're one airline, you can't talk to your competitor about prices or capacity or things like that. I mean, you know, Spirit couldn't call American and say, hey, you know, I think you should raise your fares and I'll raise mine in the morning. In fact, Bob Crandall and American Airlines a long time ago got in trouble for making that exact kind of call. right? <laughs> and But um, when airlines are in a partnership, especially if it's a U.S. and a foreign airline, they will sometimes request from the Justice Department in the U.S. and the equivalent sort of department in whatever jurisdiction the partner's in, 
um, that they're not subject to that sort of scrutiny. That they say, look, it's better for customers if we do plan our capacity together and we do set our prices together so people get the best possible fares. And when they do that, they get what's called immunization from antitrust meaning antitrust law that would normally prohibit that sort of talk, they let it go on. And to be a joint venture, you almost have to have that because you're sharing the intimate economic details of the flight, what it costs, what you're charging, what the revenues are, and maybe splitting those down the middle or splitting those under some agreement that the joint venture does. So it really is sort of the most... Um, in it's the most intensive kind of relationship. But again, you could be on a joint venture. Most likely those will have code shares on them, but they don't have to. There's nothing about the joint venture structure that says you must code share. But the reality is you could call almost anything an alliance. If you go back in time when Airtran Airways had a relationship with Frontier. Frontier, yeah. And they just yeah, kind of referred business on each other's yeah, websites. they just That's sold each other. Like you could go on the AirTran website and buy Frontier tickets. And you go on the Frontier website and buy um, AirTran tickets. But they didn't have a code share. They didn't have any other agreements. But that was an alliance in a way, right? And so an alliance is sort of just a big overarching term that just means partnership. And what makes the alliance interesting is what are all the agreements underneath that? Code sharing, joint venture, frequent flyer, ground handling, joint purchasing, all those things. Right. And in a joint venture, very often you have salespeople uh, from one airline handling all the other, all the sales for both airlines. Uh, you know, you could have Delta handling all the sales for its European partners and, and vice versa. In Europe, just to answer one other question very quickly that Dan had, he asked about code sharing, uh, reserving blocks of seats on each other's flights. And, and Dan, typically nowadays, and this is partly thanks to technology, typically it's not how it works. Uh, at first, you might have had an airline where, okay, I get 20 of the seats on your flight of 200 seats, and then it's my job to, you know, to fill them however I can. Now it's usually just integrated through the revenue management and, and pricing process where uh, just, just sort of it's a fluid thing. And whichever customer is basically the most valuable, whichever airline it comes from, that's the, the customer who's going to end up buying the seat. So you could have uh, a whole lot of seats sold by the what's called the marketing carrier carrier not the one that's operating the flight or you could have very few just sort of depending on the marketplace uh, as it exists right now you know, well, Seth, you know Seth, the um alliances are are exciting in the sense that they usually make big news and they're good for customers in lots of ways makes it easier to get to far from places around the world without having to buy tickets on different airlines and things like that but as I teach in my class, you can't really assess whether an alliance is good for an airline without looking at the underlying deals is what revenues does it generate for that airline and what does it cost them to be part of that alliance? Let me give you kind of a funny story. When I was at U.S. Airways, we were in the Star Alliance, which most of our listeners know is anchored by United in the U.S. and Lufthansa in Europe. And one of the revenue management guys in the company who got kind of disillusioned with the benefits of the alliance or lack of benefits as he saw them, um, sort of jokingly said that he felt that the biggest effect of an alliance was that big airlines just traded their lowest yielding passengers to each other since everybody protected all their higher paying business travelers on their own airline. 
Yeah, you take my three cent yield passenger. I'll take yours. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305 379 7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Finer Wine is next, but first, we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. They're a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. Beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, Seth, this one is from a Seth of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and he's complaining about spirit of all airlines. Seth of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. That must be me. Oh, wow. It's you. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's there's probably another Seth in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, but I don't know one. So, yeah. So uh, this, this is, yeah, my turn. Uh, I told the story months back about how I ended up with $1,500 in vouchers on Spirit. It was last Thanksgiving. We volunteered off an oversold flight. They reaccommodated us onto Southwest. We were supposed to get 750 250 times the three of us. But then they couldn't get us onto that flight that they had offered as the protection flight. So they gave us another 250 each. Uh, great, right? But then COVID hits and no opportunity to use the vouchers. And I had read that they were extending the validity on vouchers like a lot of airlines were doing. Uh, and, and I realized, oh, wait, Thanksgiving's coming up. So it's been like about a year. And 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 I, I went in, I looked at from my email, three of the vouchers were, offered, were issued on November 18th. Another three on November 25th. You'll see why that matters because they had messed up something with the second three. They had to reissue them. Anyway, um, so then uh, – so, so, so I see this and I'm like, wow, it's November 25th, Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving when I saw this. I said, okay, well, I better contact them and, and see what I can do. So long story short, I text in. That's the only way you can seem to get a hold of, of uh, customer care people who can help with this. They – ask for a whole bunch of information. They say, oh, you know, we're very sorry. The first three vouchers, they expired on November 18th. Can't do anything about them. And the next three vouchers, they tell me it's too early. You can't, they haven't expired yet. They expire Friday the 27th. You can, you can, you can contact us then. I say, okay, it's too early for one, too too late for the other. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll get back in touch with you. And then a couple days passed and it's, you know, working Friday. And, and uh, so Sunday, the 29th, it's okay. Let me text them back now. Cause now they can, they can do it. They said, no, no, no. Now it's too late. You, you, you had to contact We told you to contact us on the 27th. I said, well, yeah, I thought you meant like beginning then. Like you couldn't, no, no, no. That was, that was the only day you could contact us. And I said, well, that doesn't like the, the world doesn't work like that. There's only one day that you can do something right. There are deadlines or you can't do something before this. You can't do it after this. I mean, of course, there could be a range of, of dates, but you can't just tell me that there's one date, you know, in the, especially in this world right now with, with the flexibility airlines are offering when you can do this. And uh, they said, no, that's true. I said, OK, well, then if you can't do that, I want to talk to somebody who can. Uh, no, no, the supervisor is going to tell you the same thing. Uh, and, and I said, well, there's somebody at some level at that airline who, who, uh, you know, would, would recognize that this is obviously wrong. 
You, you know, and I, I even said, I said, you know, like, like if I write a letter to the CEO of the airline and tell him about this, like he's going to say, well, obviously that's a mistake. And I think you would appreciate that if just somebody used some common sense at a, at, at a lower level. And uh, they said, yeah, no, very, uh, very sorry. And later I went back to the email. I said, wait a second. No, it expired the 25th, right? Because it was all like I was like relying on them at this point with their telling me and I'm, you know, I was, I was I was busy. I said, wait a second. The reason I contacted them that day. And sure enough, I have like, there it is in my email. It expired the 25th. They told me it expired the 27th. That's not true. I did contact them on the 25th. And so I texted them back and I said, wait a second. No, it did, did uh, expire on the 25th. And they just ignored me. They, they never replied. So Ben, is that, uh, is that a fine or a whine? Well, Seth, their response seems totally reasonable to me. I think this is a complete whine. I'm kind of shocked. Come on. (laughs) Of course, that's a joke. I'm saying that only because it's you. No, but I mean, I mean, be, but I mean is... pretend, but pretend I'm someone else. I mean, I can, I can take it. I mean, yeah, like, like, <laughs> like, I mean, I just, I'm just struggling to find out what I did wrong here. You know. Well, you know, unless your name is Goldilocks, I don't think that this idea of you know it's too early, too late, one day is just right. That that doesn't really make any sense. And while you know there are rules and there's and there's rational sort of behavior. My guess is that if anyone in sort of a real decision-making role at Spirit hears this or heard about this, they'd say, well, of course, we, you know, maybe if, it, if the voucher was really expired, we can't do something about that. But did he really call in before it expired? And was there really only one day to do this? I'm sure that they would want to keep your business in some way. I'm not sure they'd write you a check for all the money you paid, but they might give you all that value in a voucher that you could still get flights going forward or something like that. I just can't believe that that you could only get to a level where nobody could do anything about it, especially over the when over the last three or four years, Spirit has put a lot of effort into being a better customer service airline to really sort of um, defuse a lot of these kinds of issues rather than escalate them. So it just kind of shocks me that you've gotten this runaround, especially during a COVID period. So I think you should just keep pushing on this one, Seth. Get get to the point where you talk to someone who really matters and they're going to give you your vouchers back. Well, and to be clear, I didn't want any special treatment. I mean, like as a journalist, that's my thing. I go through the front door and I just I just want what I'm supposed to get, you know, nothing more, nothing less. Uh, and that's what surprised me. I mean, I asked them, well, can you escalate? No, no, there's nothing else. You mean else. you didn't and, and- flash your airline's confidential bag? <laughs> they, that would, that, I would get even worse treatment then, Ben. That's a, people say that to me. Well, don't they? No, no, I don't. I don't. No, that's worse. Um, but uh, but no, I mean, I had something. I mean, just quick, something recently with FedEx, where uh, regarding a delivery, and it was a ridiculous thing that happened. I had somebody tell me, "No, there's nothing you can do," and I said, "Well, there's somebody between you and Fred Smith, the CEO of FedEx, right? <laughs> who, who who if they heard about the situation would say, wait a minute, that's not how it's supposed to go. This makes no sense. We're gonna fix it, right?' So I just want to talk to that person." Right. And I, but, but finally I got to that person. It was a little too hard, but I got to that person. And uh, in this case, you know, they're just like, no, that's, that's, that's also uh anyway. All right. So glad to know I'm fine. At, at least in this regard. It's also probably good for our listeners to know that these things happen to us too. I have this, uh, <laughs> I have this reoccurring nightmare that I'm like holding this zone five boarding pass on, 
on American or something. And I go up and I say, you know, hey, I'm Ben Baldanza of Airlines Confidential. Can I get a little better boarding? And they say, oh, sure, Mr. Baldanza. And they take my ticket and they hand it back. And I'm like, zone 48. (laughs) (laughs) You want to know what my recurring nightmare is? Totally unrelated. And then we'll let everybody finally mercifully go. Um, My first job ever, my first real job was bagging groceries at public supermarkets down in Florida. And I still have this nightmare that I realize I'm on the schedule and I didn't show up for work. And, it, and it's like, and like the never, I was, I was so responsible. Like that never happened, but it, so it, was, it wasn't like based on the, but, but, but I still, I was 14 when I started at that job, but it like terrorizes me to think that I would miss a shift <laughs> at Publix bagging groceries. I don't know. On final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked position. And remember, We'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And with a special thanks again to Chris Sloan from the Archive, I'm Ben Baldan. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.